Today, more than 80% of gene therapy trials use a tamed virus, and half of these rely on two standard workhorses, adenoviruses and retroviruses, to deliver and deploy new gene code into humans. But there are many, many ways to insert new genetic instructions into everything from bacteria to Tea Party pundits, including using devices such as gene guns, an NRA-approved device, or electroporation, electrically shocking cells to open pores and let DNA in, as well as naked DNA, sleeping beauty transposons, promiscuous DNA that inserts itself into genomes, stem cell transplants, or within neutered viruses, including herpes, lentivirus, measles, polio, listeria, salmonella, shigella, vaccinia, and cholerae. Soon, gene therapy techniques will go way beyond small patient populations. There are hints of what is coming. Two separate trials showed you can alter almost every blood-related stem cell in your body. And by altering your blood stem cells, which differentiate into many cell types in your body, you can affect some pretty fundamental changes in nearly any organ in the body. As human gene therapies get safer, they will begin to migrate from the must-fix diseases toward the nice-to-fix diseases. Moorfields Eye Hospital in London is ground zero for this transition. In 2009, they treated a healthy 23-year-old suffering from non-life-threatening inherited blindness. By 2014, a further nine patients suffering choroideremia had been genetically modified and their sight improved markedly. And while the Europeans were working to restore human vision, the white coats at Washington University cured colorblindness in monkeys and proved that the monkeys' brains adapt, even as adults, to the new visual color stimuli. Bring these two vision-restoring experiments together in your mind, and you can imagine that all kinds of strange things will become possible. Superhuman eyesight could someday transition from comic books to everyday life. One might insert specific genes into normal humans to allow them to see in other colors, say ultraviolet, as do insects, fish, reptiles, and reindeer. We know this is humanly possible because some folks, perhaps even Monet during his water lily period, can see UV light due to surgery to remove the lens to treat cataracts. And there are women who already carry an extra mutated red light photoreceptor, allowing them to see in four colors when most of us see in three. Because viral gene therapies have been primarily focused on obscure human diseases, few people understand just what a broad influence these techniques could eventually have on our species. We will see more and more genetically modified humans. It will just seem common and normal, just as IVF babies are today. Just think, baby Louise, the first screaming tabloid test tube baby, is now 37 years old, and her IVF sister Natalie just gave birth to her normally conceived daughter.
But before we start to take these technologies for granted, we may want to reflect on our newfound powers. Soon, gene therapies will likely be used for cosmetics, athletics, and longevity. We will begin to shape our own evolution by introducing desirable traits and editing out negative traits in ourselves and our kids. An easy decision when you are a parent facing a gene that will kill your child. Much more interesting, complex, and nuanced when applied to how a human looks, grows, or thinks. And we best set some ground rules as we let a new technology, CRISPR, loose on the world. Editing Life on a Grand Scale As is true of many Christmas presents, once you have the basic parts, then some assembly may be required. Which is why a new technology, clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats, is so very powerful. Fortunately, this complex name is commonly referred to by its simple acronym, CRISPR. It is a newfangled technology uncovered while attempting to produce better yogurt. Natural yogurt helps your digestive system by introducing live, beneficial bacteria. In 2006, the nice folks at Danisco were struggling to control the viruses that attack, change, or destroy the good bacteria that make yogurt, wine, cheese, bread, and many other products a common problem in the food industry. As they set about finding ways to stop this viral mayhem, they took the DNA out of bacteria and read its sequence. To their shock, they began to realize that a bacterium's DNA contains an identification mechanism, a series of mugshots of viruses that attacked previous generations of bacteria. When a bacterium carrying this mugshot of viral code in its DNA faces a new attack, it can recognize the virus and deploy CRISPR to defend itself. CRISPR identifies the malicious virus that wormed its way into a genome, cuts it out, and sometimes replaces it with some harmless code. Soon, scientists realized that they had uncovered a biological version of a Norton or McAfee antivirus program that can identify and remove viral interlopers and replace them with the proper DNA code. CRISPR can be repurposed to cut, paste, and edit any DNA sequence into or out of any genome quickly and easily, not just bacteria. And it goes way beyond just targeting viruses. CRISPR can effectively edit out any harmful DNA sequence, for example, a disease-causing gene mutation, and replace it with a beneficial DNA code, a normal non-mutated gene. Then, when a repaired bacterium or other cell type reproduces by the millions, the genomes of the progeny carry the modified, repaired DNA. Instant, non-random mutation. Unlike earlier genetic engineering approaches, such as gene therapy, which introduce one new gene into a genome with many complex and tedious steps, CRISPR is rapid, large-scale gene editing technology. 
it allows the quick modification of large sections of an existing genome, easily snipping out unwanted genes and replacing them with whole sets of new genes. Think of this as transitioning from a mechanical typewriter, having to use whiteout and retyping a word or phrase in one's term paper, gene therapy, to having a primitive word processing program that allows one to swap whole paragraphs and pages in and out, CRISPR. And you don't retype it all. The printer does that for you. Of course, while younger readers haven't lived through the pre-word processor stage and may simply assume it was always easy to manipulate and edit large documents, they too will live through a similar techno-shock when their grandchildren look at them incredulously and ask them to describe what were leading-edge cancer treatments back in their day. Gramps, is it really true that when you were young and someone got cancer, doctors poisoned a patient's body with deadly chemotherapies, then bombarded them with DNA-destroying radiation, and even cut off their body parts? Didn't you understand that cancer is a genetic mutation? And that by simply switching some genes on and off or replacing them, how could you have been so primitive and ignorant? Are you sure you weren't also using leeches? In evolutionary terms, once you have a toolkit with the basic building blocks of life and a rapid, large-scale editing system, you could recreate, edit, or collapse the four-billion-year saga of life on Earth into a short documentary. And then you can edit at will or rewrite the story going forward. Almost any genetic mutation, benign or otherwise, man-made or natural, recent or ancient, from any species, can be recreated and introduced into a living cell, at will, sometimes in an afternoon. Because CRISPR can cut, remove, and replace hundreds perhaps thousands of genes in the genome of a living cell per day, it is Lamarckian evolution, turbocharged, and on steroids. Remember Lamarck? He's the guy who a couple of centuries ago argued that beneficial traits can be deliberately acquired in one generation and then passed directly on to descendants and was laughed out of the room. And while giraffes still don't yet grow much longer necks in a single generation. With CRISPR, it's possible to engineer bacteria and some plants and animals with new traits within weeks. The first experiments editing the genetic code of human cells has shown efficacy in repairing mutations and creating resistance to viruses. In vivo human trials are certainly not too far off. CRISPR is not squirreled away inside top-end secret labs. It's in the hands of high school and college kids. It has permeated scientific research so quickly that Jim Collins, an eminent Boston researcher, facetiously apologized at a conference when he mentioned he would not discuss CRISPR. The applications are endless. Someone could study gene code left behind by past viral invaders in bacteria and be able to identify the oldest life forms on Earth. Think of this like a carbon-14 test, but instead of measuring the radiation decay in some long-dead bones, 
scientists are tracing the genetic footprints left by the earliest infections. Others could study defense mechanisms in one of the most pervasive species, E. coli, and ways to take advantage of CRISPR to fight pathogens. But by far, the most important impact of CRISPR will be on the modification and evolution of humans. As broad-scale genetic engineering accelerates and decentralizes, animals and plants are already getting a little weirder. Scientists can build life forms to suit local tastes and needs. Featherless chickens are running around the Israeli deserts, better able to resist the heat. However, not everyone thinks these bright pink creatures are good-looking. For good luck, the Vietnamese produce seahorses with gold dust in their cells. Cows, goats, sheep, and camels are made to produce medicines in their milk. You can buy glow-in-the-dark cats, bunnies, fish, sheep, and silkworms. Or you can order a glow-in-the-dark plant for your living room. Just the first step in a Kickstarter project that eventually aims to replace street lighting with glowing trees, powered by the sun. Not all of this is just fun and games. Some of this genetic engineering could upend economic systems. A key change, now apparent in algae and agriculture, but not yet in many other areas, is the ability to stack traits, that is, to insert multiple genes at once, replacing or repurposing an entire biochemical pathway or even multiple pathways. This used to be an expensive, tedious, multi-step process. Identify the desirable gene trait. Synthesize one gene by pasting together small bits of DNA. Test whether the new gene works in bacteria. Transfer the gene to the appropriate algae or plant cell. Add more genes to embed a multiple gene pathway. Rarely did this work the first, second, or third time. After tens of millions or sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars and years of work, you could sometimes produce commercial quantities of transgenic offspring, expressing the biology you designed into a plant. Now, with CRISPR or through synthetic biology, multiple traits can be introduced into algae all at once. A new biological pathway confirmed to be in the cells in days and commercial quantities grown in weeks to months. You no longer need to breed in one trait after the other in a linear fashion. Just change it all at once. So, near the salty brines of Calipatria, California, a very friendly and intense Jim Flat, president of Genovia Bio, is trying to massively increase algae productivity and produce mountains of green gunk. Because the genes in these cells have been reprogrammed, they are beginning to produce fuels in one pond, vaccines in another, animal foodstuffs in a third. Eventually, this could lead to big changes in the agricultural ecosystem and even global land use. Engineered algae can theoretically produce a hundredfold more of a desired product, such as protein or oil than traditional crops using far less space. 
This may be the only way to supply feed to our expanding farmed fish industry and provide animal protein for up to 9 billion of us. It could also allow us to return a whole lot of cultivated surface back to nature. As we get ever better at engineering non-random mutations, evolution compresses and really accelerates. Our newfound ability to engineer organisms on a systematic and massive basis is a game-changer. Soon, if we find one particularly compelling and positive genetic mutation in one person, we may be able to spread it to many, without waiting a few tens of thousands of years. Whereas we used to be able to rationalize by saying, God did this to us, or nature did this to us, or our enemies did this to us, now we are increasingly in charge. We are responsible for the outcomes of our choices on how life evolves, how our species evolves. Alongside the science, there has to be a broad ethical debate and education. This is what we can do. This is why we think it is a good idea to develop and deploy these new instruments. And these are the open ethical questions we need to address. One place to begin to address ethical questions is when and how we choose to deploy gene therapies, domesticated viruses, and CRISPR to engineer the gene code of all of our descendants. It is one thing to choose to alter ourselves during just our lifetimes, but it is a decision of a different order of magnitude to alter the species going forward. To date, investigators have not targeted sperm or egg cells in humans with gene therapy, but the capability has been demonstrated in animals. Reasonably soon, we will find a safe way to engineer long-term changes into our descendants. When we choose to do so, we will begin to shape the species according to our own set of instructions and desires. This is not just unnatural selection, altering and shaping what already lives. This is non-random mutation, rapidly creating and passing on something new. So let's now look at the completely uncontroversial topic of altering future babies. Unnatural Acts, Designer Babies, and Sex 2.0 Modifying even the most basic birth organs is now fair game. In the spring of 2013, nine women in Gothenburg, Sweden, got a very odd gift from their mother, sister, or aunt. A used uterus. Disease or deformation had made their own infertile but transplant surgery had become safe enough and in vitro technologies advanced enough that it made it possible for these women to carry their own children. Seven of the operations worked well, and in September 2014, a 36-year-old woman who was born without a uterus and implanted with a 61-year-old's donated uterus gave birth to a healthy baby boy. While the uterus transplant operation is large and flashy and gets big headlines, even a transplanted uterus is not long-term redesign of the human body, of the core human code. 
but a microscopic and obscure mitochondrial transplant is. In 2015, the UK may become the first country to allow transgenerational genetic engineering, changing a baby's gene code in a way that will then, in turn, be passed on to all future descendants. This type of procedure, known as germline engineering, sperm or egg, has so far been banned in most developed countries. But as technology and knowledge advance, the UK's chief medical officer, Dame Sally Davis, now advocates lifting this ban for a very specific use to deal with mitochondrial diseases. Mitochondrial DNA, mtDNA, is strange stuff. It operates as a mini-genome, separate from your core 23 chromosomes, and resides within the energy-producing units of your cells, the mitochondria. It is remarkably stable because it comes only from your mother. Sperm have no mitochondria, and it does not recombine with your father's mtDNA. So mtDNA can unambiguously track your line of matrilineal descent. It's the reason we now know that every human alive today descended from one common ancestral mother, our mitochondrial Eve, who lived about 180,000 years ago. While many other women lived at the time, only one was lucky enough to have kids who survived to have kids through 7,200 generations, all the way to the present. Our newfound ability to alter this, the most stable part of the evolutionary tree, could have long-lasting implications. We may want to proceed with mtDNA therapies so as to prevent an alphabet soup of really rare but generationally persistent diseases caused by mutations in mtDNA. Patients and their children could then avoid persistent cyclic vomiting, some cancers, heart tissue death, blindness, deafness, asphyxiation, and a host of other symptoms. The protocol for the treatment seems relatively simple and not entirely unlike IVF. Take an unfertilized egg from the mother with defective mitochondrial DNA, remove only the nuclear chromosomal DNA from the egg, transfer it into the donor egg of a woman who does not have a mitochondrial disease and whose nuclear DNA material has been removed, fertilize in vitro with dad's sperm, transfer into mom's uterus, have a healthy baby, and therefore healthy descendants for that baby. According to one of the scientists involved with the research, what we've done is like changing the battery on a laptop. The energy supply now works properly, but none of the information on the hard drive has been changed. These kinds of mtDNA treatments are initially only applicable in a very small number of pregnancies. In the whole of the UK, maybe they save 10 lives per year. So why is it such a big deal? When one alters the core DNA of one's egg and sperm, not only does one alter the evolutionary development of the embryo, one potentially alters the future of a part of humanity. These technologies allow children to be born with genes from multiple parents, 
with an ever-increasing number of potential gene donors going into a single body. And there is a growing temptation, as we develop new techniques, to redesign not just an individual baby's genome, but that of all its descendants. One glimpse of where we might be heading is U.S. Patent Number 8543339, Gamete Donor Selection Based on Genetic Calculations. Owned by 23andMe, a genetics diagnostic firm funded by a founder of Google and temporarily limited in its diagnostic services by the FDA, the patent purports to help those seeking a child via IVF to make informed decisions. The patent's crude drawings supposedly allow one statistically to opt for various body traits, blue, green, or brown eyes, high or low risk of various cancers. Gee, let me think about that choice. Congenital heart defects? Long lifespan? The intellectual property claims jumble stuff that's reasonably predictable, such as alcohol flush reactions and a lot more complex diseases whose likelihoods are buried under complex mathematical gobbledygook. While we remain a ways away from routinely implementing these diagnostic practices, a few aspects of such a system already operate today, due to our ever-increasing ability to test pre- and post-birth for deadly or seriously debilitating conditions. Preconception the Jewish Genetic Disease Consortium's advice is unambiguous. All couples with any Jewish ancestry, including interfaith couples, should have preconception carrier screening for all Jewish genetic diseases. Many others follow this advice as well, pre-diagnosing a broad set of potential conditions. Then, during the first trimester, many fetuses are also tested for yet another set of genetic conditions. Finally, at birth, the state of Massachusetts mandates immediate screening for 52 genetic disorders. There are more and more questions asked at every stage, and as questions and diagnoses mount, there is ever more pressure to modify. Every year, the genetic casino gets tipped a little more toward eliminating more disease carriers and inserting positive traits, perhaps inserting the CETP gene associated with a 69% reduction in Alzheimer's, or the DEC2 gene, so you only need six hours of sleep each night. A rare APOC3 gene mutation may become a popular addition, as it's been found to lower fat in blood by 65% in the test population of old-order Amish and to greatly lower Alzheimer's risk in Ashkenazi Jews. Japanese-Americans, who carry FOXO3A, have significantly lower rates of cancer and heart disease than the average American. Each of these discoveries increases the potential menu of desirable alterations to one's own genome, or that of one's baby. Some fertility treatments are the wild west of medical trials. The most radical new technologies appeal to desperate couples after natural means do not work and traditional IVF fails. They may be on a very tight biological clock timeline and unlikely to voluntarily participate 
in traditional double-blind studies. Many hucksters peddle unproven, costly, and ineffective solutions. But often it is hard to track who is doing what to whom, because most of these procedures are paid for out of pocket. Insurance companies don't pay until efficacy is proven in a traditional human trial. Great ethical challenges arise as assisted reproduction gene-altering technologies become cheap, effective, widespread, and ever more powerful. After all, many of these techniques can be carried out in a sterile office with inexpensive equipment and some increasingly simple recipes. We already witness lab, farm, and home engineering of bacteria, plants, and animals, knocking out or inserting specific genetic instructions into many an organism is commonplace. Then the specific organism makes copies of itself time and again as a new and improved version. As the speed, knowledge, and power behind life code manipulation increases, and as gene transfers and edits can be safely and reliably introduced into nascent embryos, we should expect a tidal wave of genetic upgrades in humans. We're well on our way toward non-random mutation and the custom design of our bodies and our babies. And now, we are even starting to play with our brains. Boyden Brains Of all the organs and body parts we can alter, none will make as much of a difference long-term to the history and destiny of our species as the brain. It is what makes you, you, and an individual. It is what makes us humans as a species. As we map, study, modify, and perhaps upgrade our brains, as we experiment with how to stimulate neurons to do or not do something, we potentially alter consciousness. We change our fundamental selves. No one is closer to the bleeding edge of this research than Ed Boyden. MIT is full of very, very smart people. Interacting with a genius is a daily occurrence. Sitting next to a Nobel laureate is not unusual. But even within this hallowed community of brains, misfits, creators, egos, and builders, Ed Boyden stands out. Many MIT folks think he is one of the most creative, constructive, imaginative people on campus. Apparently, President Obama agrees. When he launched his brain research initiative in 2014, there were a lot of old, white-haired, top-of-the-science-food-chain-type folks running around at the ceremony, plus this one kid called Boyden, who looked more like a student than a professor. Boyden started out as a physicist, but soon found most projects too massive, expensive, and slow. Then he studied quantum computing, an area rife with uncertainty, philosophical questions, and doubt. What was fascinating to him is that quantum uncertainty could still generate some real, concrete, mathematical, and cryptographic solutions. But eventually, the questions that really caught his imagination had to do with understanding, mapping, and modeling the brain. 
How do chemical and electrical stimuli interact to make you taste, love, think, and vote in particular ways? Can you build a map of specific human traits, actions, and beliefs? How does the mind make sense of the world? How does it repair circuits after strokes? What, if any, humanity is lost following a serious brain injury? Drawing on his experience in physics, a field that requires building new machines to rapidly and accurately measure the minutest, shortest-lived, and most elusive of particles, Boyden entered brain science in the late 1990s, when there were very few ways to probe the brain, and almost none, to answer any of the questions he was interested in. Most of what was known about brain structure and function in living brain cells came from relatively macro-level observations of larger areas of the brain, measurements of just a few cells at a time, or observations of the effects of specific injuries on personality, memory, and behavior. In labs, blurred images from fMRIs provided the multiple colorful images many of us associate with brain research. But this type of study relied on ponderous machines and did not directly measure brain cell activity, and certainly not in real time. Microscopes were difficult to use on true living cells, particularly across large-scale networks, directly stimulating specific brain centers through electrodes, sometimes stimulated actions or desires, but it was pretty hit or miss. Today's brain treatments remain singularly crude. A few central nervous system drugs sometimes work, but many trigger major side effects. It takes a brave pharmaceutical company to launch yet another brain drug trial, given the graveyard of failed and very expensive trials. 92% of central nervous system drugs fail, and they tend to fail late in the clinical trial process, when it's really expensive. On average, an $890 million, oops, never mind, every time. One way to reset your brain circuits, even today, is through electroshocks. Or you can saturate your entire brain in a chemical soup of antidepressants, stimulants, and seizure moderators. Boyden took one look at this flailing around in the medical community and, instead of waiting for the right instruments to be built, he began to do what any physicist would do. He quit speculating and built new technologies to really understand what is occurring inside the brain so he could measure and act accordingly as real data began to flow. Domesticated viruses turn out to be a terrific way to get data. Most of the nasties that infect your body do not cross the blood-brain barrier, a very good thing. A century ago, in the time before ethics panels, researchers filled some poor schlub's body full of blue dye. Soon, all of the person's body tissues looked like a smurf, except the brain and spinal cord, thus proving there is a barrier that prevents many drugs and molecules in the bloodstream from getting to the brain cells. Boyden gets around this issue by injecting engineered retroviruses directly into brains where they soon colonize all the nooks and crannies. 
the retroviruses carry the gene code required to make an opsin, a molecule that allows microscopic sea algae to convert light into electricity. After retroviral opsin molecules enter brain cells, they can be used as on-off switches. Soon researchers were placing microscopically thin strands of optic fibers near living brain cells and watching minute flashes of light as individual brain cells turned on and off. This new method, known as optogenetics, means one can watch and map in real time what is happening inside a brain, exactly which neurons are active when an animal moves, eats, smells, or learns. And one can begin to control these neurons. Because Boyden and his team send their protocols and reagents to any researcher who asks, many a graduate student is now busily filling brains with lentivirus to produce high titer cell-specific neural labels. The result is a torrent of data illuminating what is occurring inside the brain of many different species. All this provides an increasingly accurate set of blueprints as to what takes place inside each brain cell networks of cells, and brain regions. And, just as occurs in physics, new machines and new technologies often provide answers to some of the most basic of questions. What kinds of neurons are in each region of the brain? How do they connect? Which behaviors are they linked with? New atlases now compare how particular brain regions interact and how entire classes of brain cells work. One surprising and particularly exciting development is that opsin-transmitting light-encoded information does not just map the brain. The system can carry instructions into the brain. Using lasers and fiber optics, one can activate retroviral opsin-infected cells to command specific neurons into action. By lighting up specific brain pathways, Boyden's lab can get mice to move in a particular way, feel particular things, or forget traumas. What began as a mapping activity, a technique designed to query the brain, ended up birthing a way to instruct and control parts of the brain. It goes way beyond mice. By 2012, using multiple colors of light and patterns, Two groups of researchers demonstrated that one could use minimally invasive methods to alter primate behaviors. Light could stimulate their neurons in such a way that the animals reacted faster. These discoveries could potentially alter how we treat various mental illnesses in the future. After mapping the active neurons in the brain of a mouse with post-traumatic stress, for example, Boyden's team could make an educated guess as to which specific regions of brain cells remembered and reflected the trauma. They then used fiber optics to stimulate or block specific neurons to see how the mouse responded. Eventually, they figured out how to block anxiety and stress with light pulses. The next step was to try out the same technique on humans. One of the tragedies of the use of IEDs and other explosive weapons in war is that many soldiers suffer extreme physical trauma. Prior to our unnatural and extreme medical interventions, 
very few would have survived the kinds of wounds one commonly sees today in VA hospitals. Piecing bodies back together sometimes requires implanting electrodes in wounded warriors' brains to instruct their bodies in carrying out basic functions and commands. Because the retroviruses that deliver fluorescent proteins to brain cells are safe and effective, surgeons could someday implant fibers in the brains of soldiers suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Then, by lighting up these specific cells and activating them, these disabled veterans could block PTSD symptoms. New imaging methods, biomarkers, and a focus on precision measurement and engineering are altering our understanding of how brains work and how far we can alter them. Autopsies suggest that some distinct brain structures may make some people prone to suicide. Individuals who committed suicide showed epigenetic changes that switch off the SKA2 gene, which controls the brain's response to cortisol and stress. Not surprisingly, given a possible heritable component, suicidal tendencies can run in families. One strange, gruesome statistic. Biological relatives are six times as likely to commit suicide as our adoptees within the same family cluster. By mapping brains, perhaps we may be able to tell who is at risk and institute preventive measures. The ability to deliver very specific instructions to a brain keeps improving. Boyden's Mary Tribe realized that if they could make each brain cell sensitive to two colors, then they would have far more control over outcomes. That is, if a blue light pulses, do X. If green, do Y. One implication of controlling in two or more colors is that scientists could now use the binary code of computers, long strings of ones and o's, light and no light, or current and no current, to upload or download information into brain circuits. Light can be used to bypass traditional biological bridges between the brain and various organs. In a tour de force, Boyden's team took a blind mouse and labeled the bipolar cells in the retina, rendering the cells sensitive to light. Soon, an animal that had struggled to find its way out of a water maze could easily identify the lighted path. Companies like Bionic Sight and Gensight now want to take these discoveries into human trials to cure blindness, bridging damaged eyes and the brain. This is just a big first step. Brain light switches could have many uses. Eventually, one could conceive of a series of light-mediated connections between the brain and various organs, say, a cable linking the thought of moving one's left arm to the arm itself thereby bypassing the severed spinal cord of a paraplegic. In a sense, this is like a heart bypass. You reconnect the parts that work. But you are using light to send impulses from the brain to the arm's nerves instead of to the spinal cord. Neurosurgeons now envision ways of modulating specific brain regions during epileptic seizures or using light to bridge an injured region after spinal paralysis. Or perhaps even how ADHD might be light-moderated. While bridging the brain in various body parts or enhancing our senses is a big deal technically, these changes will have far less of an overall impact on humanity than using light and other instruments to control, 
modify, alter thoughts. Within the next few years, Boyden should be able to map neuron by neuron one cubic centimeter of the approximate 1,000 cubic centimeters that constitute the human brain. As more and more of the brain gets mapped, we will know what the effect is of modifying single cells, altering connections, or stimulating particular neurons. There are plenty of willing subjects to map and test. More than 250,000 people in the United States already have implanted electrical stimulation electrodes to treat epilepsy and other conditions, so it would be relatively straightforward to carry out various parallel, fully consented experiments. What scientists are already discovering is that if brain chips electrodes are placed in the right areas and stimulated just so, then they can modulate specific brain activities. One of the stranger and potentially more than a little disturbing implications of using electricity or light to control the brain is that firing off a few cells can sometimes create or erase a memory, including things that never took place. Specific light pulses can trigger fear of an impending electric shock in rats. A different pattern of light pulses can make the rats forget these fears. Or one might be able to insert and trigger traumas or pleasures. These emerging capabilities might just have a few legal, ethical, and moral implications. Eventually, 3D optical neural microimplants could become standard and help us hypersense the world around us and interface with ever greater databases. We would also need to develop very strict protocols as to what is controlled by whom. Even small, localized interventions can have massive effects. For instance, in humans, electrode recordings showed that groups of neurons sometimes fired moments before a conscious decision was made by the patient. This implies that our brains often make decisions before they are thought through and rationalized. If one were to activate particular neurons, one might be able to induce or suppress actions before a person is ever conscious of making a specific decision. One might conceive of many potential benefits from this kind of intervention. Reduce violence, limit strife, stop suicides. But what is to be controlled, when, and by whom, are non-trivial considerations. They go to the heart of who we are as individuals and call into question what is free will and independent decision-making. As we alter gene code and brains, our very consciousness may be at stake. Evolving Ourselves Better Living Through Chemistry? Mary Lou Jepsen, a brilliant, bubbly, no-nonsense PhD, has had an extraordinary chemical journey. She and technology guru Nicholas Negroponte used their base at the MIT Media Lab to launch what initially looked like a completely quixotic effort to design, build, and distribute a $100 laptop. 
bringing computing and the web into the poorest classrooms in the world. Along the journey, Mary Lou learned Chinese, earned the trust of Taiwanese hardware manufacturers, and became the first Westerner allowed into their fabrication facilities. After years of real-time co-engineering and literally sleeping on factory floors, she shipped the betas of the new computer in 2006. Her quest to provide the cheapest computing, full of tales of skullduggery, daring do, and heroism throughout South Asia, eventually led her to rethink and simplify overall computing while taking on some of the world's largest and most powerful oligopolies. But even this achievement pales in comparison to Mary Lou's simultaneous struggles with her health. Whenever Mary Lou jets around the globe, she is never more than a few hours away from dying. Literally. During graduate school, she learned that her long history of extreme health problems was caused by a hidden brain tumor that, among other things, caused her pituitary gland to secrete numerous hormones in the wrong doses at the wrong times. This finally explained her chronic oversleeping, weight gain, vomiting, sores, and extreme mood swings. Brutal radiation and chemotherapy led to the removal of many of the key hormonal pathways in her body. Though cured of her tumor, her body chemistry was so disabled and unstable, she couldn't live without constant chemical, hormonal interventions. Forgetting to take a pill or injection could be fatal. Her uncertain recovery and continual treatments didn't stop Mary Lou from finishing her doctorate, getting a top MIT job, launching the One Laptop Per Child program, and getting married. Neither did it stop her from traveling all over the world, even though missing her meds because of customs, a bad connection, or a closed pharmacy could mean death. She established a triple redundancy system whereby medicines would be prepositioned with her and with someone else, wherever she came from, wherever she was going. Before every trip, she mapped out pharmacies that could quickly provide what she needed in an emergency, noting the local names for each drug and a doctor who could prescribe it, day or night. At first, her regimen was standard and brutal. Doctors prescribed, she took. Often, the side effects were horrific. As doctors shifted strategies, Mary Lou began to realize that different formulations, dosages, and hours would lead to extreme mood swings and physical reactions. Being first and foremost a scientist, and having built a career in statistical analysis and coding, she began to observe, record, and run real-time experiments on her own body and brain. Her vast spreadsheets detailed what would happen as she altered the specific dosage and timing of every drug she was taking. She found that average doses were a recipe for disaster, and a personalized, self-administered prescription was far better. Even when she found a workable regimen and her life could go back to almost normal, Mary Lou did not stop experimenting. Her drugs substituted for the master gland that regulates one's most fundamental feelings and desires, likes and dislikes, the pituitary. 
she began real-time tests on what different hormones might do to her emotions. By upping her dose of substances like testosterone, she became more and more masculine. As she describes it, suddenly, within a few hours, she became the hormonal equivalent of a teenage boy. She couldn't stop thinking, continuously and obsessively, about sex, sex, sex. She became far more confrontational, arrogant, and aggressive. She began to see women and men in a very different light, understanding each far better. Although it was fun to experience another gender, she decided within a few days to return to feeling like a woman and then began to experiment with various types of hormonally driven moods and desires. By the end of the experiment, she had lived several emotional lifetimes in one body, found a balance that she and her husband liked, and got on with changing the world's IT and computing systems. She took control of her brain and body. Had she been just a little less determined, just a little less brilliant, it is likely, she believes, she would have ended up, in her own words, crippled, drooling, imbecilic, in her mother's basement, awaiting the end of a short life. The extent, breadth, and impact of hormonal adjustment carried out by Mary Lou is extraordinary. But we are already modifying millions of individuals' hormones on a massive scale. As we learn more about the interaction between our genes and the glands in charge of implementing their instructions, we are ever more consciously modifying our daily attitudes, desires, fears, and actions. And as we learn more about how our bodies feel and act under the influence of various pharmaceuticals and natural substances, more and more people are choosing to alter their complex hormonal balances. We enter a future where we don't just map our brains and thoughts, but also consciously alter our feelings and emotions. The desire and drive to alter, to feel more, to enhance, is certainly present. About 7% of U.S. 12th graders have tried MDMA, a.k.a. ecstasy, or E. Why? It makes them feel happier, more sensitive, connected, empathetic, and emotionally open. It accentuates music, colors, and touch. For some, it significantly improves sex. Ecstasy is but the tip of the iceberg. The most used drugs in the United States today, legal and illegal, have one purpose. To alter your mood and feelings. To modulate, attenuate, depress, and pacify your various demons so that you believe you feel better. Drugs non-randomly alter one's body chemistry. Serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, epinephrine, octopamine, and a multitude of other biochemical systems. We still have much to learn about exactly how various drugs alter your brain and how they affect different people. As demonstrated by Mary Lou, average dosage means very little. Multi-drug interactions are rarely tested. And it's not just a drug itself or the gene variant of the specific patient. 
food consumption may affect the brain and drug interactions. More than 85 prescription drugs may interact with grapefruit juice, at least 43 of these with serious consequences. Side effects may last for weeks. Adverse reactions to MAO inhibitors can be triggered by eating aged cheeses a full two weeks after taking the pills. We are still quite ignorant about how to target many drugs to do only what they are supposed to do. That is why page after page of small type follows every bright, cheerful drug ad with the happy, bouncing patient running through meadows or hugging a loved one. It can all go horribly wrong in the wrong dose or the wrong patient. Yet none of this stops us from basting our brains in chemical soups to modify our feelings. In Rochester, Minnesota, and the leafy burbs of Olmsted County, right near the Mayo Clinic, the population is moderately Republican, mostly white, somewhat prosperous, and apparently not completely happy. Almost one out of five women aged 30 to 49 is on antidepressants, about two times the rate of males. And use of these mother's little helpers increases with age. Opioid painkillers are also quite popular, as about 16% of these 30- to 49-year-old Minnesota women use them. In 2014, use of benzodiazepine was correlated with a significant increase in Alzheimer's. Turns out this is relevant to millions because it implies the most popular anti-anxiety medications, including Ativan, Clonopin, Valium, Xanax, may have very long-term effects. The longer the patient took the drug and the higher the dose, the greater the chances of Alzheimer's. Keep in mind this is correlation, not causation. It may be that anxiety, not the drugs used to treat anxiety, is behind Alzheimer's. But there may be something to watch carefully here. It may be that some of the medicines we use today can fundamentally alter the brain decades later. Large portions of our modern societies are in the midst of massive experiments, far less radical and brutal than Mary Lou Jepson's, but transitioning from tribes and rural enclaves to packed urban environments can make individuals feel as if they've ended up in a lonely sea of people. Many then turn to chemicals to alter or intermediate how they feel, act, live, mate. Better living through chemistry? One of the ironic effects of chemists getting really good at building new medical compounds, ones that target very specific brain receptors, is the rapid displacement of many all-natural drugs of yore. Cocaine, opium, and marijuana grown in faraway jungles and then transported over long and uncertain routes are often displaced as drugs of choice by lab-made, non-natural, legal chemical products. Legal opioid sales throughout the United States have quadrupled in just over a decade. By 2010, overall annual opioid production had reached the point where you could medicate every adult in the United States with the equivalent of 5 milligrams of hydrocodone every 4 hours for one month. If you are middle-aged, the chances of your dying from drug use now exceed those of dying in a car crash.
Other than in terms of purity and quality control, legal and illegal substances seem to be converging, according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Stimulants such as Ritalin achieve their effects by acting on the same neurotransmitter systems as cocaine. Opioid pain relievers such as OxyContin attach to the same cell receptors targeted by illegal opioids like heroin. Prescription depressants produce sedating or calming effects in the same manner as the club drugs GHB and Rohypnol. And when taken in very high doses, the cough suppressant dextromethorphan acts on the same cell receptors as PCP or ketamine, producing similar out-of-body experiences. Mood-altering chemistry is now part of day-to-day life for large swaths of our species. Our power to self-regulate mood could lead to far greater empathy, understanding, and well-being. We can modulate, control, or domesticate some behaviors and conditions by taking the edge off. But this ability to constantly introduce unnatural chemistry into our bodies and brains also brings up significant political, security, ethical, and moral questions. How do we regulate and control our most basic feelings and perhaps actions? Increasingly powerful and targeted mood drugs mean our kids and grandkids will be able to choose to experiment with what it feels like to be the opposite sex, gay, depressed, angry, happy, extroverted, introverted, and myriad other conditions that remain hard to empathize with without having experienced them oneself. But in experimenting, we may also alter our fundamental selves, redesigning the moods and actions of large communities. Bioactive chemicals can affect how our bodies develop, how our sperm and eggs are epigenetically encoded, which microbes and viruses cohabit our bodies, and even with whom we choose to share genes. Unnatural and deliberate chemical interventions are often destiny's toxins, leaving long-lasting genomic memories that increasingly determine who we are, how our retirement years might play out, how our future kids develop, and what we will become. Forever young, beautiful, and fearless? Are we all doomed to age and die? The good news. We humans are so smart, we have engineered lifespans equivalent to 500 human years. The bad news? So far, only in worms. If you genetically modify worms to suppress the insulin IGF-1 signaling system, you can increase the creature's overall lifespan by 30%. Alternatively, if you suppress the nutrient-sensing TOR pathway, lifespan doubles. And if you modify both, that results in a five-fold life extension. Now the quest is on to apply these kinds of discoveries to humans. Seemingly forever, quacks and researchers have pursued the fountain of youth, sometimes through quite exotic treatments. In the 1920s, surgeons seeking to rejuvenate older men began transplanting the testicles from young sheep. Bad idea. 
All kinds of transplant experiments later, the odd quest continues. In 2013, Harvard researchers joined the circulatory system of an old mouse with that of a young mouse. Within four weeks, the older mouse's heart disease was gone and the organ rejuvenated. Fortunately, their next step wasn't starting to stitch young people to old people. It was to isolate the growth factor that restored heart health, GDF-11, and begin moving toward human clinical trials. Over the past two decades, we have been promised that an unending alphabet soup of genes, IGF, GDNF, BDNF, EGF, IGF, VEGF, SDF, HGH, GNRH, TGF, EPO, FGF, NGF, GMCSF, PDGF, PGF, HGF, can help us grow, repair, or otherwise alter various body parts. Many of these experiments show promise, and each moves death a little further out. MDs are now starting to think of old age as a chronic disease. But the real question is whether, by bringing some of these treatments together, we will ever see a combined effect similar to the one we saw in worms, a five-fold life extension. There are various hints. Our brains make GnRH a hormone that controls our sex organs, regulating puberty and fertility. When older mice get infusions of this substance, age-related diseases decrease and lifespans extend by 25%. We don't yet know whether GnRH would do the same for humans, but we do know that Italian women who are still fertile in their late 40s are more likely to live to 100. Similarly, Korean eunuchs, deficient in testosterone, on average lived 17 years longer than their peers. Fountain of youth? Take your pick. A little GnRH or castration. Or, perhaps, a cocktail of other substances that might slow aging. NAD+, TFAM, or resveratrol. Geneticist Eric Topol's study of welderly populations may provide a roadmap for what to add and subtract from our hormonal mixes. Close to 48% of those aged 75 and older in the United States never suffer significant hospital stays, and nearly another 30% only go in once for a major intervention, say, a knee replacement. These welderly give us hope that aging may be a somewhat treatable and postponable condition. There are about 70,387 identified age-associated epigenetic switches that change as we age. About 56% of these switches tend to be flipped on, and 44% are flipped off. As we begin to modulate the right switches, we may be able to seriously alter part of the aging process, and perhaps even understand why men age 4% faster than women. Even without gene therapies, simply improving exercise, nutrition, vaccines, antibiotics, conquering a series of diseases, and reducing risk factors, we've made some dramatic gains in longevity. In Denmark, the chances of an individual living to age 90 or above increased 30% per decade for those born in 1895, 1905, and 1915. 
throughout the world, social security systems are financially succumbing to what turned out to be way too pessimistic actuarial tables. With gene therapies added to many other interventions, longevity records and the oldest person to do X awards will be broken time and again. So don't feel so awful the next time an octogenarian passes you in a half marathon. If we begin altering hormones and modifying genes to influence aging, we are also likely to deploy these technologies and techniques for other purposes, like modifying sexuality. GnRH regimens can block the onset of puberty in a transgender youth or complement cross-sex hormone regimens. Perhaps one day genetic surgeons will modify humanity's looks not with a knife, toxin, or filler, but by silencing or promoting specific aspects of one's gene code. Maybe insert a variant of the ABCC11 gene so your underarms won't smell. Or how about an anti-wrinkle pill to reduce crow's feet? DNA sequencing already allows one to statistically infer hair and eye color, racial ancestry, and various other physical features. But the maps get increasingly more accurate and granular. One study measured 7,000 features on faces of many shapes and varieties and also measured DNA differences in many of the genes known to control anatomy. From this, they were able to deduce a crude image of what a person looks like using only their DNA. Anthropologists now use this knowledge to try to predict the looks of ancestors in cases where they have found a few bones with DNA but no skulls. Pennsylvania police used the same emerging technology to try to find a serial rapist. But someday, if we get accurate enough, parents may want to adjust particular facial features based on genetic and epigenetic treatments in utero. Gene surgery could someday modify even deep fears and phobias. About 5% of Spaniards are prone to sudden panic attacks. Imagine driving somewhere to pick up your kids, and suddenly, out of nowhere, your brain chemistry dumps you into a state of extreme fear, chills, sweat, nausea, heart palpitation, pain. One of the causes of this recurring condition, in addition to the possibility of your in-laws coming to visit, is a faulty NTRK3 gene. This variant drives a miscommunication between the hippocampus, which directs the storage and context of memories, and the amygdala, which takes stored context and drives the appropriate response. The result is a series of inappropriate and panicked responses. However, a drug, tiagabine, can sometimes help reset memories that lead to a panic response, which creates an intriguing set of questions. Could we systematically modulate human fears? One could easily see why this might be something potentially useful, not just for those suffering panic attacks, but also for an army or security apparatus. Eventually, would there be circumstances under which you might want to genetically modify panic genes, like NTRK3, within an individual or a family? Although specific and targeted brain modulation sounds like science fiction, as we have seen, 
there are more and more examples of brain control that go far beyond fear. Perhaps gene surgery will become as prevalent as plastic surgery is today, but it won't just modify looks and lifespan. Potentially, it will also change our most basic feelings and actions. One more set of instruments to unnaturally tune up oneself and one's species. Unnatural Attraction Whom you have a child with is one of the most consequential decisions you will ever make. But as you pick your mate, beware of unnatural selection. What you see is not necessarily what you get. As humans develop ever more sophisticated camouflage, an increasing amount of today's sex, mating, and reproduction is driven by deceit, cover-ups, and outright lies. Given how important looks are in mate selection, it's not surprising that personal appearance is one of the first places where humans began to practice unnatural selection. From the earliest of tombs and the oldest of mummies, be they in South America, Egypt, or China, there is one constant. We try, desperately, to enhance, highlight, or hide our appearance. Humans have been using tattoos for at least 5,000 years, for example, and Neanderthals may have used cosmetics for over 50,000 years. One of the most common ways to incentivize someone we might not normally mate with involves cosmetics and plastic surgery. The human eye and brain and nether parts are exquisitely attuned to the minutest signals of fecundity. For millennia, we have finely honed our senses to judge very quickly if that cutie walking by would be a good mate. Do the skin and hair look healthy? How about women's hips, thighs, and breasts? Or a man's abs and gluteus maximus? Age? Facial symmetry? Choosing a mate is an especially important decision in monogamous societies. If you're to procreate with just one person, well, it truly should be Mr. or Mrs. Wright if you wish to improve your descendants' traits, particularly given your own flaws. Americans spend close to $250 billion on cosmetics in an effort to edit, enhance, or obscure our natural looks and signals. And there is a dirty little secret behind many of the 14.6 million plastic surgeries that take place yearly. Not all of them were medically necessary. All this primping used to be illegal. As early as the 700s, the British passed a law that read, All women that shall from and after this act impose upon, seduce, or betray into matrimony any of His Majesty's subjects by the use of scents, paints, cosmetics, washes, shall incur the penalty of the law now in force against witchcraft and like misdemeanors, and that the marriage upon convictions shall stand null and void. Translation, Arch, lass, go back to being a smelly, toothless hag. While these kinds of laws are laughable today, some feel cosmetic surgery has gone too far. Ethicist Christy Scott believes Evolution continually strives to keep the best genes around to proliferate the species, 
emerging cosmetic surgeries inadvertently attempt to cheat this by altering external flaws and ignoring the intact internal code where the flaws remain. With more and more people flocking to cosmetic procedures at younger ages, doctors and consumers need to understand and discuss the importance of this dramatic misrepresentation to the opposite sex. The traditional clues and signals one received from hair, skin, or fat in the right places are being obscured or outright falsified. It's not just a Hollywood phenomenon. Iran has the highest rate of nose surgery in the world, seven times that of the United States. Ethical or not, cosmetics and surgeries often work. Those who are put together tend to be perceived as more beautiful and competent. Even certain artificial looks, for example, those clearly signaling exaggerated and grossly inaccurate mammary capacity, are no longer hidden but celebrated. The title of one of the most popular Colombian soap operas, Without Breasts There Is No Paradise, many endorse significant pain and expense to alter eyelids, smooth foreheads, shrink noses, tuck tummies, or paralyzed skin in attempts to attract those who might have ignored their unenhanced version. There's ample proof that as a species, we don't just want to cover, we want to alter. Now we are increasingly able to do so. Enhancement can be rocket-boosted by emerging technologies that non-randomly and unnaturally alter the way our bodies look and function. The fastest-growing cosmetic segment is cosmeceuticals, cosmetics with biologically active compounds and drug-like effects. These range from prescription eye drops to grow longer eyelashes, perfumes you swallow, and anti-scar creams. But sometimes the changes induced by these products can last a lifetime. Human growth hormone is being repurposed from medical use to cosmetic use because if you are tall, you tend to have a higher income, a better-looking partner, and more power. According to one study, being 10 centimeters taller increased both men's and women's average income somewhere between $1,874 and $2,306.